With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the 15th episode of my show. I'm really excited to have this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, highlight current issues that need to be discussed more to help reduce breaches and security incidents, and I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to better protect their privacy. Please check out my websites, privacyprofessor.org, simis360.com, and privacyguidance.com. So speaking of tips, my May Privacy Professor Tips message was published on April 30th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, sign up for them. They're free. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box at the upper right part of your screen. May 3rd was World Password Day. Did you know that? Well, here's my tip for this week that relates to passwords. Never, never keep the default password that comes with your tablets, routers, smartphones, or any other type of device, or that's a part of any apps you're using or systems that will ever be connected online or to any other type of computer, such as through a peer-to-peer connection. So why? Well, because those default passwords are almost always the default for everyone who is also using your same type of tablet, router, smartphone, or other device and the same application and system. Default passwords are one of the first passwords that cyber crooks try to use to break into any of the apps and systems and devices and so on that they can very easily find through a wide range of freely available online tools. So change those defaults as soon as possible and establish a complex long password in its place. One that has upper and lowercase characters and special characters and numerals. And as a related tip, always use two-factor authentication whenever possible. This will help to keep the cyber crooks out of your devices and systems, even if they do happen to crack that very long and complex good password that you chose. So speaking of cyber crooks, today I'm going to discuss with my distinguished guest a very long-time form of cyber criminal subterfuge. We often think of cyber crooks as coming at us from far away places through the internet, but what many folks don't think about 
is how they got a pathway into our computing devices and our systems to begin with. Many times those pathways were established through direct contact with their victims. Yes, direct contact. And you know what? Their cyber victims often did not even know it at the time. Or maybe the victims found out right away after this direct contact ploy was used successfully and then ransomware or some other malicious code shut down the victim's computer smartphone. So how can such an obvious and out-in-the-open type of hack be accomplished? Well, consider this. If you find a USB thumb drive when you're in the library or maybe after you've gotten into your hotel room or maybe after you've been seated at a table at a restaurant, what would you do with that USB thumb drive? You know what? Most people being curious would probably stick that into their computing device to see what's on the USB drive. In a 2016 research study that was performed by Google and the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and also um, the University of Michigan, 297 USB drives were spread throughout the Urbana-Champaign campus, and they found that Almost half of the drives, 48%, were picked up and plugged into a computer, many within minutes of being dropped. And you know what? This was not the first time such a research study was done. In fact, my guest today has been doing these types of research studies for many, many years prior to that. And my own guess is that those Google researchers probably learned a lot from my guests' results and decided to do an almost identical type of research project using my guests' methods. So let me tell you about my guest who pioneered and created these types of honey stick projects. And then he'll explain that interesting name, honey stick, uh, during our chat. Scott Wright President and CEO at Security Perspectives, Inc., is a cybersecurity coach and consultant, and he's based in Ottawa, Canada. Scott's been working in the IT security world for over 20 years with his initial work as a software product manager for Intrust in the early days of online banking in the late 1990s. Now, since 2003, Scott's been working with business teams to help identify and control risks from employees using the internet. Scott has created a number of really interesting security initiatives over the past 10 plus years to help raise awareness around cybersecurity risk, from using USB drives to smartphones to open Wi-Fi hotspots. His latest initiative is a startup that will be focusing on gamified e-learning, which will use a new approach to engaging and educating individuals about cybersecurity and privacy in an e-learning environment. Scott, thank you so very much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. It's great to be speaking with you again. It's uh, it's always great to talk with you. 
Oh, it, it is always so fun, and I always learn so much, especially I love hearing about your experiments. Um, you know, the first thing I try to ask my guests, though, is how you got into the information security space. You know, what led you into your information security career? And I mentioned you've been um, in the career for over 20 plus years, but maybe you can elaborate a little bit more about what led to your path to where you're at today. Sure. Well, I got into security when I was about five years old. No, I'm just kidding. uh, I've been around for quite a while. Um, I was uh, actually a product manager. I'm an engineer by training with with, uh, an MBA. Uh, I was doing product management for a number of different companies. And Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, decided to change careers and I, I started working at Entrust, uh, which was a, a high-tech software security company here in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really where I learned the majority of uh, the important security stuff over a number of years there. Uh, and when I left there, I, I started doing independent security consulting and really started to um, understand sort of the fact that we don't have too many problems as far as uh, building good security technology. There are always innovative mm-hmm. people out there. A lot of the times, the problem comes from how people use them. And it's not the mm-hmm. user's fault necessarily, but there are these gaps between the technology and the people uh, that don't always get addressed. And that's really kind of what's what's driven me to the point that I am right now. Um, it, it did really didn't take, uh, there wasn't really much known about security at the time when I started to get into in fact, I remember being at a trade show uh, back in probably, well, when I just after I'd started at Entrust, probably 1999 or so. It was probably RSA or some, some show like that. And I remember one of the uh, speakers talking about how job ads are advertising for people with 10 years plus of security, IT security experience. And there was nobody <laughs> that had 10 yeah. years of IT security experience in, at that time. So it, it's been a long road since then. Certainly, there's a lot more known and, and a lot more activity. So I've really enjoyed working in, in the IT security world. And um, I particularly enjoy working on the side around human vulnerabilities and, and the things that we can teach people. Yeah, you know, that human gap. I mean, what so many people don't realize is people aren't born with an innate understanding of data security, right? I mean, they have to learn about it in some way. So you can't expect that people are going to automatically know about uh, security issues, even if they are are millennials who might have had, you know, computers in their hands from uh, a very young age, like you mentioned, since you were five, <laughs> as a joke. <laughs> but but you know what? My sons, I actually started having them do war driving with me when they were five and seven. So I guess someday they they can um, actually say that with a lot of truth behind it. Yeah, it's uh, true. And I think one of the important things to realize about you know today, even not necessarily the the younger generation, uh, even the old, the older generation, we are all sort of very trusting of the things that mm-hmm. are given to us, right? So whether right. it's when we were growing up, it was just television, right? We Everything on television was authoritative and there was no fake news. <laughs> Whatever yeah. came out on TV was, was the truth. And so it was, uh, it, you know, we, we sort of ha- have this tendency to, to trust things and, and people. We want to be, you know, good citizens and, and be courteous and helpful to people. And there's a lot of trust there that is uh, starting to become, you know, a concern. And, and, and a lot of times uh, it's, it's misplaced. 
Well, speaking of trust, uh, there's a lot of trust issues involved with what you do with what you call the Honey Stick Project. So um, let my my listeners, and keep in mind I have listeners um, throughout the world, so this might be a new term for many of them. A lot of Mm. them work in information security and privacy, but a lot of my listeners are also the general public who are trying to keep up to date with what's going on in security and privacy. So um, how did you get started with what you call the Honey Stick Project? You know, tell us what that is and explain why do you call them Honey Sticks? I mean, (laughs) do you coat them with sugar or what? (laughs) Yeah, that's an idea. I haven't tried that, but no. um, Yeah. the the history first of all the the reasoning and and the way I came about doing this was pretty simple when I had been working as a consultant for about five years or so I realized that as I said you know there's a lot of good technologies but we needed to educate people on on some of the risks and mm-hmm. I I wanted to start teaching and. One of the things I found that was very helpful when you're teaching is to have some good statistics and stories to tell. And there weren't really a lot of stories about things like mobile device risks, um, and, and not many people really understood them. So uh, what I decided to do was see if I could come up with a way of creating some data that I could talk about. It didn't have to be you know, terribly you know, a large quantity of data, but just something to start the discussion uh, when I was doing training. And uh, I had read an article. It's kind of interesting. I, I was trying to find it before the show, and it's so long ago, I think uh, Dark Reading has changed their servers, and it's not even there anymore. It was like 2007. <laughs> um, it was definitely around 2007. There was an article about the risks of using mobile USB drives or portable storage devices, as they were called. And, um, you know, one the article talked about a penetration test that was done where uh, a security tester had been hired by, uh, I think it was a bank or some organization, to try to break into their network. And, and the, you know, the management was was pretty confident that they had pretty good security. And so the penetration tester got thinking and was creative and he thought, I bet I could get in there if I had a device that I could get somebody to plug in. And so he wrote some uh, simple software that would really just gather information about whatever account was logged in at the time that uh, somebody opened the file uh, on the device. And they, they, I think they took 20 USB drives, scattered them around the parking lot of this building. And that was sort of the very first story that I ever heard of, of, of using USB drives as a uh, sort of a threat vector for, for testing at least. But there were more stories that came after that. Uh, the, the thing that I really liked about it, it was very creative, but the thing that I had a concern about in terms of trying to do something that myself was the, the risk involved the this the scenario in my head kept playing over you know what if somebody comes walking by on their way to work and they pick up one of these things and it's not they don't work at this location they work at a hospital next door and they go in the hospital and they plug in the device into their you know nursing station uh, computer and sort of coincidentally maybe somebody dies at the same moment <laughs> i think there could be a lot of complications there if they discover that you know we had some mm-hmm. software that they had you know run and and you know, it caused uh, or may have been related to somebody's death. So I really didn't want to get into that kind of risk. And I yeah. started thinking a lot about how I could do this in a safe way. So I did some experimentation and I found that out. And we can go into more detail about what, what it involves. But that sort of started me on the road of experimenting with what I could get onto a device that uh, I could just see if people would plug it in and if I could measure it. And um, the the name sort of comes from the, uh, the old... Um, IT security world where they use something called a honeypot. Uh, and that was really actually to attract bad guys uh, because mm-hmm. uh, 
in the old, there was a story, I think it was The Cuckoo's Nest, the, one yeah. of the original uh, novels about uh, IT security hacking. It was a very interesting story. It's worth reading still. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they actually, you know, talked about the idea of a honeypot where you'd, they'd notice people breaking in, but they wanted to uh, be able to identify them a little bit more and, and learn about, more about them. So they would create these little servers or, or, you know, file locations that looked really interesting. And so then the attacker would spend some time poking around there, and, and it was really a way of attracting them like a decoy to get them to spend time. You could then track down, you know, their IP addresses and, and trace them around the world, as it turned out. Um, so that was kind of the first type of honeypot. But the the whole term honey sort of just in uh, sort of gives the connotation of it's it's some kind of a decoy or something that attracts people uh, in a way that's sort of controlled or for not the not the exact purpose they might think it is. Yeah, you know, I think it probably comes from that um, very old idiom, too. You can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. (laughs) So uh, you can catch more crooks with uh, um, some tasty-looking USB drives that are intriguing than, you know, putting something out there that's very obvious. And there have been many, many different variations. You know, I've heard mm -hmm. ones where people drop... uh, CDs, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, DVDs and CDs would get dropped and people would yeah. plug them in or, or see what's on them. And it, it really could be the same kind of risk. Right. Even with back to the floppies, you know, yes. if, uh, people remember those. So, <laughs> so right. tell me, um, you know, I remember talking with you uh, several years ago, too, where you were brainstorming about, you know, well, this was, I think, on your second or third iteration, you know, some good possible places to drop these sticks. But tell us the, the first time you did a honey mm-hmm. stick type of project. Was it with the USB drives and uh, was it for just general research or were you doing this for a specific client? I mean, was it back around 2007 when you mentioned or fill us in on that that first project that you did yeah yeah actually you're, you're bang on really it was first of all just to try and gather some data I did it in a sort of controlled way I think I bought 10 USB drives and um, I had spent quite a bit of time creating some Perl scripts where, so I could create these the files in an automated way so they were consistent it was very time consuming to edit <laughs> the files you know to to create them but I, I would actually uh, do them automatically and so mm-hmm. I created a, a program in Perl that just would create a set of files that I would put on a device and the, the fun thing was every file was essentially the same except for one thing and that was it was uh, they were HTML files which means they were just like any web page really mm-hmm. and that's how I got around the idea of actually installing my own software because when I put the HTML file on a device, if somebody double clicks on it, what is it that happens? Well, it starts your browser, whatever browser you have in your in your computer starts up mm-hmm. and it tries to open that file. And so I was using an image reference tag within an HTML file, which just means it was trying to go get an image from my website uh, mm-hmm. to display when you open the file. And so I would, you can add tags to the end of that reference, which tells you some information about where it's coming from. And every single file, in every device had a unique little tag so I could tell which file was being opened on which device if somebody double clicked on it after they'd plugged it into their computer as long as it was connected to the internet so mm-hmm. that's how it how it all worked and I had st- experimented with this and I do remember uh, contacting you think, thinking okay so I'm collecting some information about this stuff and I know that there's IP addresses that I'm going to be able to get you know where, where mm-hmm. this stuff is coming from in my web logs and mm-hmm. I thought I should ask Rebecca you know if this is <laughs> something to be concerned about <laughs> if I'm gathering all this 
IP address information. You know, of course, it's pretty naive because that's that's the minimum of what people collect on on you now. It's right. Uh, you know, it, there's so much more. But you know, I wanted to be careful not to be doing anything that was really uh, unethical or, or illegal. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I did spend some time thinking about that. I think I sent you a white paper and we we discussed yes. it. Um, mm-hmm. And so from there, I refined the pr- the project a bit so that I could you know get the most efficient use of information. And the other fun part of it was once I realized that all the content was the same except for the tags in these files, the fun part became, what did I call the files? You know, what, what would you name these files to try and get people to open them? And I yes. discovered that you need, you know, probably a, a, a variety, maybe five or ten different file names of different types, right? One of them might be budgets. People are really interested in you know, financial information or even salaries. Um, other ones might be, you know, passwords or, or uh, concert tickets. Um, and the most interesting one that I ever used, and I don't know why I did it, but I, I had written, I started pointing the the uh, resulting, when you clicked on it, the, the landing page would go to a website. And I started pointing them to my blog post. And I had one blog post about crop circles for some reason. I can't even remember <laughs> what it was about. But I called the, the file name crop circles. And I used this one time uh, in a demonstration when I was doing a presentation to a, a potential client. And um, I asked, you know, the guy said, can we drop one somewhere outside the, the conference room doors and see if anybody uses it? And I said, yeah, it's probably not very likely because it's, you know, so close and so near the time that we're presenting. Mm-hmm. But then I was doing the presentation and I showed people the logs and I said, oh, somebody opened one <laughs> like 10 <laughs> minutes ago. And it turns out it was the IT guy from the, the company. IT guy. The IT guy, yeah. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. It was on a, an isolated machine. You know, it didn't, well, it had to have internet access in order for it to actually open and, and wow. register in the logs. So I kind of was a little skeptical of his claims that he did it on a safe machine. But uh, all that to say, there, you know, there's a lot of fun you can have with this stuff. And, and you know, the file names was just one of them. The other interesting things were like, where do you drop them? When do you drop them? I know you want to sort of get into that at some point, but um yeah, that's sort of well, where, where we've gone so far. Well, where uh, which of your files then? You you listed some of them. Was crop circles the most clicked on file, or was it? <laughs> no, no. The, guy, the reason I mentioned crop circles is because the IT guy actually yeah, fessed up guy. to it in, in the in the in the uh, in this session. He goes, "I had to figure out what was on that crop circles file." You know, like I don't know why, but they would just. It tweaked them right, but yeah, the most common ones were passwords and, and salaries. Uh, um, and, yeah, and, and what we'll find out later when we talk about uh, the smartphone project that I did is there's there's other kinds of things that people are interested sure. in too when you get to smartphones. Um, but yeah, it's it was definitely you know uh, an interesting project. Lots of little decisions to be made about where and when to do things and what to put on these things, and every tweak every variable kind of matters and uh, mm-hmm. I was trying to do it in a way that would attract people you know entice them to click on it but not be sort of unfair about it uh-huh. uh, you know in terms of where I place these things I put them in public locations where it was never really obvious that it belonged to any particular person and people would have to actually make a judgment to say am I go- what am I going to do with this thing am I going right. to keep it plug it in myself or am I going to go turn it in at the nearest uh, authorities you know, desk or something and so that's kind of what what I was measuring was how many of these things got clicked on versus how many got turned in essentially and uh, that was the data that I used for a long time uh, I think I did 50 devices in the period of a, mm-hmm. a year um, not, a, not a lot of strict controls on it but it's really a highly variable project anyway there's not a oh, lot of sure. precision it was really just to measure trends and, and have some stuff to talk about so, um, so um, that the tag that you talked about that would be like a web bug then for those who uh, 
you know, or listing that might be familiar. I mean, is that, I'm asking you, is that like a web bug that you're talking about? Uh, You know what? I've not, I haven't really studied web bugs. It's been so long since I've I've done some of this stuff, but anytime you reference something on the internet with a URL, you can put a question mark at the end Mm -hmm. of it and put any string you want after that. And that string gets passed to the server. And if nothing else, it gets put in the server's log uh, at certain logging levels, right? If depending on what what detail they're, they're logging. Um, And so that I just parsed that stuff afterwards with a program to look at it and say, you know, what, where, where, what was in that string? Did, it, did I recognize which device or which file it was in? So if that's a web bug, then that's what it was. But I, I never really studied web bugs that much. Yeah, it kind of sounds like it. So it, it sounds like you started out, you're based in Ottawa. So was this, um, was your first experience in doing this in a parking lot uh, in Ottawa? Is that where you started yeah. and then kind of branched out from there? Yeah. So like I said, there's a lot of variability. So I didn't really care too much about making them all, you know, in the same place at the same time of day every time, which would have maybe had less variability. But what I could say is um, I could put them in places that were kind of reliably crowded at certain times. So food courts, uh, transit stations. um, I got a little braver going to like elevators of office buildings and things like that. I got to say that the first time, first few times, even still, when you drop these things, you kind of feel a bit like a criminal because you know you're putting stuff out there (laughs) that people, people are you know, not expecting what 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 they're going to get when when they open this thing, right? So it's a. Uh, there are lots of different places I drop them. So I did drop quite a few around Ottawa, and then I did some in Toronto. Uh, you know, a four hour drive from here. Uh, some in Montreal, and actually, I think I did some in uh, U.S. cities where I was visiting, like Las Vegas or or whatever. Oh, sure. Um, so, um, but yeah, there wasn't a lot of strict control over where I did it. Um, so much in terms of uh, geographically. Right, right. So you kind of started from there and branched out. Did anybody ever get mad when uh, they got caught, you know, when when you let them know that, hey, you fell for this trick? Um, How how did people usually react to things? Well, that supposes that they had a way to, to contact me. So there, there was a, uh, a time where I would oh. put the contact information on the devices. At first, I was doing that. And uh-huh. so people could try to return them. Uh, I later on did some where I didn't actually have contact information. Um, and that would actually entice people m- more to click on what's in the other. The, the contact, actually, I now remember, uh, the contact information was not in an HTML file initially. It was just a text file. So they could okay. easily open that without it causing any and any impact whatsoever. But I decided not to do that because then I couldn't actually measure uh, those cases unless they actually did call, contact me. There weren't too many that, that actually reached out to me and, and inquired, but I do remember once I got a call from uh, the police here in Ottawa oh. <laughs> saying well, somebody found this at an arena and turned it in and, uh, you know, we're just wondering what this thing is. <laughs> so oh, I had so to then, sort of explain. Then the police did stick it in their computer then to figure it out, huh? Well, actually, no. I don't think that one did get plugged in. Uh, well, they yeah, sorry, you're right. They must have because they wouldn't have contacted yeah. me otherwise. But that was in a exactly. non, uh, yeah, it was in the text file at that point. So, I mean, there was really, there's, there's never any damage or potential for damage in using these things. But I only counted it if they were clicking on the HTML files. Because okay. if they only wanted to find it, uh, who, 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 who it belonged to and contact me, then I didn't penalize them for that. But, right. you know, there's, right. it's debatable whether or not that was, you know, certainly there's always a risk in, in inserting or collecting. But uh, oh, that definitely. was just a way of doing it. So, so uh, yeah, they, they had definitely so looked at it. I hate to interrupt you, but we're coming up on a break right now. So uh, 
Thanks, Scott. We'll come back and I want to pick up from there. But right now is the time for a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I appreciate so much. We're speaking today with Scott Wright about honey sticks and all the sweet tricks that social engineering scammers use to get into your computing devices. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email and also through my websites. Please stay with us. We're going to be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and today we're speaking with Scott Wright about honey sticks and other lures that cyber crooks just love to use to catch victims. So let's continue with our conversation. Now, Scott, you know, we talked about your uh, before the break, we talked about what you were doing with your research and experiments, but Talking about this situation in the wild, how bad of a problem do you think it is right now uh, today with the actual crooks using honey sticks and other types of devices that have malicious code on them? Are, are they starting to use them more? 
Um, actually, it's evolved quite a bit. There was, uh, I mean, at the time that I started doing this, it was a, not that huge a problem. It was certainly a problem worth talking about. But obviously, over the next uh, few years after I began doing this, uh, mobile uh, data and portable storage devices became quite a big problem. Um, now with newer operating systems and, and safeguards, endpoint security, there are probably less risks in general, uh, especially to businesses from these kinds of devices, just because of the safeguards we have in place mm. from, from the normal types of malware. But of course, attackers always evolve their methods, right? So, you know, we find a way to, to lock one door and they, they find another door to come in. So what they're doing now uh, with in the, in the area of devices is using uh, the devices that look very different. I mean, the, physically they look the same, but they actually behave like a keyboard. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's one, one called a rubber ducky, which I'm not sure where that name come from, but oh. it, it's, uh, it's uh, basically it looks like a USB drive. And when you plug it in, it's as if you're plugging a keyboard into the computer. And of course your computer doesn't think a keyboard can be dangerous. So it's going to say, yeah, come on in, um, you know, type what you like. And you can program these things to, literally write a script or a program on the user's account in real time. Like as it's plugged in, it will spit out a bunch of characters into a file, save the file, and then try to run the file. Well, wait, wait, before you go in. So (laughs) this device, this rubber ducky device. Okay. So before I I have in my brain what a USB thumb drive looks like. So how is the rubber ducky device? I mean, does it look just like a USB thumb drive? It looks exactly the same. Okay. But it's yeah. the exploit that's different. It's, yeah. Inside, okay. they're very different as well. It's like a miniature computer rather than just a, a storage device. Okay. And so you can literally program these things with uh, whatever you want. Uh, and it will, when somebody plugs it in, it will spit out a, a string of key, uh, keystrokes uh, as if you're typing on a keyboard. So it's, oh. it's kind of a, the equivalent of having an attacker come in when you're not looking and you're still logged in and just typing away on your keyboard to enter whatever... Uh, entries they want. So they could mm-hmm. poke around for files and send uh, web queries, for example, mm-hmm. to a website and exfiltrate a whole lot of data from files or send send data from the files that are accessible from your account to uh, wherever they like. Uh, they could also download programs. Um, oh, from the internet and run them. So it's a lot more efficient, right? They don't have to program mm-hmm. every single thing that's going to go on this keystroke uh, or keyboard. Uh, it just, the uh, first thing it does is it goes and gets a file and that file runs and, and it will do what it wants. So it's as if the user is running a program of their, of you know, that the, uh, the attacker has given them to run or put on their computer to run. So there's a lot of dangers still in using unauthorized devices. They just look different to the computer than they used to. So let's say that I did this. I picked up one of these rubber ducky devices. I stuck it in my tablet or my laptop. Now, am I going to see, you know, you're talking about all these um, programs running. Am I going to see anything on my screen or do I know that all these different types of activities are going on or is it going on in the background? Well, if you're paying attention and you have, you know, a suspicion that it might be Strange. You probably will see a couple of things. You might see a little window flash up, like a little command line ah, window, um, okay. as it's trying to do some things, and then it will quickly try to hide itself, right? Uh, so, okay. that, but but there are certain things that it is very hard for it to hide. Um, but it's counting on the fact that you know things happen on your computer all the time, and you don't always mm-hmm. notice uh, you know, something might pop up or go away or whatever. You know, all these little notifications. So, right. yeah, these things can. They you can 
sometimes detect them if you know what you're looking for, but a lot of times people don't realize it and it's right. gone before they know what to do. Even if there was a flash, well, I don't know what it was, but things seem to be okay still. So I'm, I'm good, right? So uh, if somebody notices that, like with me, if I see things like that, I immediately disconnect from being online and I run my anti-malware software just to, mm-hmm. to see. Is that something that would help to identify these and locate them or... Um, are these files created in such a way that even your anti-malware isn't going to find them? Uh, it really depends on the sophistication of the attacker. They, they could okay. do it probably in a way that you wouldn't be able to detect. Just like any malware writer now mm-hmm. will morph their, their malware to a new version so the, the antivirus software won't be able to detect it for a little ah, while until people sure. report it. Right? So um, mm-hmm. that's, that's, a, that's a known technique that's been used for several years now by attackers. So it would be possible for them to get away without being detected for some period of time. But it, mm-hmm. if it was uh, somebody, uh, if the program was just trying to download a piece of known malware and run it, your, your antivirus would probably catch that. So you're doing these types of, uh, you started out doing these just for your own curiosity and to kind of give you some good examples to point to when you're doing your training and all, but you also do these types of projects for your clients, right? I mean, um, can you describe maybe some of the different types of client projects you've done with Honey Sticks that um, that have turned out to be the most, <laughs> out, you know, mm-hmm. the most gullible and maybe give us some ideas about what you do for organizations with these types of projects? Sure. Well, I can't be too specific about certain right. clients, obviously, but um, I could just say that it, it did become a pretty popular type of um, study or assessment to do, uh, along with, you know, phishing types of assessments and social engineering types where you're, you know, trying to test whether people are following policies or things like that. Um, so, Detecting whether people will plug in a device or not became sort of a standard part of of a security test at some point for some organizations. And and the ones that I have done uh, typically have... uh, gone fairly smooth, although there's a couple of, of little stories. I guess one of them would be, I typically would uh, sit down and brief the IT security team. They, they would usually bring me in and they would always want to do these things without telling anybody. Right. Um, which which you can debate whether or not that's the right approach, right? They want to get a, yeah. a clean baseline, you know, with no bias or, you know, uh, prior knowledge, and which is, is fine, but I, I would certainly tell them, okay, let's make sure that first of all, the employees have been notified that they might be subject to, you know, certain security tests to see mm-hmm. if they're behaving or, or following policies and also to see if uh, their uh, people understand how to report suspicious things and and mm-hmm. use the proper protocols and of course they'd say yeah yeah we, we've done that and so let's just go do the do the devices so uh-huh. I, I do the devices and one time um, you know in an organization of five six thousand people um, we dropped well one of the things I learned is I should really supervise the the dropping because <laughs> somebody <laughs> dropped like five of them on one floor of an office building in one day and and they oh. all got turned into this, this the service desk which is good mm-hmm. um, but the service desk got suspicious because there were so many of these things and they hadn't been told about them and they oh. they did look at what was on them and there was budget information and they immediately panicked and thought it was some somebody trying to steal information you know inter- oh. internal financial information and yeah. what did they do is they called the executive uh, <laughs> directly rather than escalating it through the 
channels where we could have stopped it and, and said, right. okay, yeah, good. Uh, we didn't get any hint of it until, you know, one of the senior managers called me up and says, um, we have a problem here. <laughs> right, it, was, right. it was because they didn't actually have the process well understood for handling uh, incidents. So right. it's, these are things we learn. <laughs> Well, you know, talking about giving notice, I mean, I haven't done your types of projects with clients before, but I've done other types of, you know, social engineering things. And what I've learned over the years, too, is a lot of times they don't, you know, the the general employee population doesn't know, but I always have required like the CEO and the the VP that's over the security to at least know yep. about them <laughs> just yeah. so you know they aren't caught flat-footed when they get people starting to to complain or or something yeah. like that. So yeah. so that's something our listeners, those of you who are responsible for information security programs out there, keep that in mind if you're And you're it almost has to go right this. to the top because yes. um, in fact, the, uh, it was an executive level person who whose idea it was to do these things, okay, to do this kind of test. And it was yeah. sort of handed out as a mandate to the IT security manager who may or may not have been completely on board with it, but decided, okay, I will do it. Uh, and so then when the incident happened, they called somebody above that executive who didn't mm-hmm. know that it was happening. Yes. And that's when the crap hit the fan, right? So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to make sure that you respect the uh, the, the top dog. Yeah. Or the, and the and you also have, yeah, you also have to think about what other unexpected behaviors. This is not like penetration testing on a, an IT system, right? Somebody could take the mm-hmm. device and go to the media with it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and say, yeah. this is, you know, we're getting attacked, you know, and, you know, then the headline then becomes, you know, government department gets attacked by, you know, and when it's really nothing <laughs> or it's a test. Right. So, oh. There's that's a lot a, of communication that has to happen. Yeah, that's such a great point. And, you know, talking about the media, you were on the NBC Today show back in 2012, back when you were, you know, this was becoming something that was just really enlightening a lot of folks. You you went on that show to discuss your project. So um, back then, just think, you know, that seems eons ago now, right? 2012 yeah. oh, and yes. six years, yeah. technology has evolved so much. But back then, what did the hosts find of most interest and have you seen the devices change over that amount of time yeah well speaking of devices changing that whole project was done with smartphones rather than usb drives so the little bit of context there was in in 2012 yeah in 2011 Symantec, uh, their their PR department contacted me and said, you know, we really like your your project and we follow the you know the stats and and find it really interesting and we'd like to do something and and sponsor you to you know do a study, but we'd like to do it with smartphones because smartphones had become really big since the time I started doing this with USB drives. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the iPhones have been out for a few years and um, Android obviously was becoming big, so smartphones were really a, a an important topic to talk about. And I thought, well, yeah, I. I'd like to, but I couldn't really figure out exactly what I would do. So I had to think about it for a few months and decide how we would design a study. And, you know, the logical thing to say would be, well, we should, you know, make sure we use Symantec software on this, you know, to demonstrate some of the capabilities. And I'm going, first of all, we're not going to put any software, we're not going to put any security on the device because that would really discourage people from, you know, you wouldn't get a lot of positive results from from this. So I said, we're really just going to make it as if it's an unlocked you know, unsecured device, and then look at the opportunistic threats. What would people mm-hmm. do with a device when you lose it? Yeah. And so what we did was we created a bunch of fake apps that had different icons that looked like things like Facebook or 
Gmail or you know internet uh, banking, uh, and even internal HR salaries and things like that. And so we created all these fake apps, and we also put a GPS tracker service on it just for fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we got fifty. Uh, HTC smartphones. They wanted to use iPhones, but they were way too, too expensive and hard, yeah. a little harder from my point of view to to, to program for this because I'm not a real techie. I'd you get might my get son some, to help me. <laughs> yeah, you might you might be able to get a few iPhone 10 or iPhone Xs. Yeah, right now, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, anyway, what we ended up doing to answer your question was we dropped 50 smartphones in five different cities around North America, and uh, with these. Totally, you know, um, consistent set of apps, uh, so we could measure everything on them. Now, and were these like huge cities, or when you're talking about them, or you know, so like it's kind of funny because it, they uh, Tom Costello on on NBC says, you know, they drop these smartphones in New York, Washington, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Ottawa. Ontario, Canada. <laughs> so, <laughs> why, why Ottawa? I guess all these others. Well, it's because that's where I am, right? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, it was a little bit of an outlier. But uh, in that yeah. sense, it was an interesting study. We, yeah. we discovered that ab- about well over 80% of the devices people tried to access more over than just the contact 80%. information. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't just for contact information. We did it the same sort of way from what I'd learned from the USB drives. You need to put some contact information there. But we could tell if people were accessing the contacts app only or if they were accessing all the other apps too. And well over 80%, everybody accessed all the apps. And uh, the most popular app, Mm -hmm. if you can imagine, was Private Pictures. Uh, you know, I was just thinking celebrity photos and all yeah. that stuff. They probably would have or looked for some salacious types of photos or exactly, images exactly. there. Yep. And so, you know, that there's lots of good stories that came out of it. The study was really oh, yeah. successful from the point of view of PR, for sure. They got millions of, of broadcast impressions on all different platforms, which was great. And uh, and what was really nice for me was after all this work and not really sure, being sure if it was going to work at all, I sort of got the feeling at the end of it that we'd raise the level of awareness of people. The the basic point was put a put a password on your smartphone. <laughs> yeah. You know, after all at, this, at the minimum, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the NBC Today Show link uh, clip is still available. I think you have to go to the the Wayback Machine or the archive.org to to uh-huh. find it. It was from uh, March, I don't know, eighth or ninth something in 2012, um, with Matt Lauer and. <laughs> The, the team there but yeah. uh, the I mean Tom Costello was was the uh, the reporter who did the story we recorded it at the Symantec uh, threat center headquarters and it was it was a lot of fun and and he really enjoyed going through one of the things that we did uh, the PR company said you know we kind of have to make this sexy we got lots of lots of good data but you know people aren't going to want to look at tables of you know data yeah. about how many how many got clicked here or there so I, I created kind of like a <laughs> call it a, an aircraft accident reconstruction like a it was a GPS map where I could click through time and 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 show where the phone was and oh, yeah. what was being accessed at that time. So I had a little timeline down the side and and the oh, GPS path idea. going around. They loved it. They loved it. Yeah. And so they had this on a huge big wall screen in the threat center. And Tom Costello's going down. Look at that. It was accessed at. 11 p.m., 12 p.m. for HR, and then, and then he was up at five in the morning looking at salaries, and 
<laughs> it was a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. Well, you know, that is true, though. I mean, just imagine when people find these things, they're probably looking, peeking at things either really late at night or really early in the morning when other people probably aren't around them to see what they might be peeking at, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was amazing that some of the things you'd see. And and that there are other good stories. One of them was... Um, Somebody found a device in uh, in Santa Monica, and you know I could see that they were using it, and then it disappeared for a while. But then I got a, oh. a, a note from them saying, "I found your device about a, a week ago on the Santa Monica Pier, and I used it for a while, and I reset it, but now I feel guilty, so I'd like to return it." <laughs> that was wow. so nice. You know? Yeah, that's that. You know, that is really good to hear. Uh, people felt guilty media, after peeking. Exactly. Well, the media found the the interesting part of the story was, you know, the honesty part of it. How much? How many of them got returned? And of course, the New York City, thirty percent of them. Three of the ten phones got returned. Two of them disappeared almost immediately, like they they had their SIM cards removed and everything. Right. Oh wow. Um, and, but in Ottawa, we got seven of them contacted us to to return them, and so of course seven out of how many? Out of ten. Wow, yeah. 70%. So we had 70%. Yeah. So, of course, the Ottawa media is going nuts, going, oh, we're the, you know, <laughs> the nicest people in the world. So, yeah. uh, but well, that was the Des Moines. Point. Do that yeah. in Des Moines. Come on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I mean, I was kind of disappointed because the real message should have been, look how many people are looking at your data if you lose exactly. your phone. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. They may exactly. be honest in returning it, but it's like they've already gone through all the data at that point. And they so. might have taken how much stuff off of there in the meantime, too. So, yeah. Um, or what if they were a crook and they found it and they said, hey, um, I'm going to put some, you know, ransomware in here and then return it to the person yeah. and see if, uh, you know, own them, take a yeah. opportunity yeah. there. Well, you know, talking about smartphones then, so you evolve from USB drives to smartphones and now mm-hmm. look at all of these Internet of Things devices. Gotcha. I know that you told me that you're looking at what you're calling a honey points project is that does it have something to do with the internet of things or what's involved with yeah that? It, it could um I, I did a pilot project just to see how well this would work but you know the idea of a rogue hotspot, which means uh, mm-hmm. i think you talked with tom Eston about this last week um yeah. you know people can set up a, a fake access point call it starbucks or, or whatever the name is of the place nearby and mm-hmm. people will connect it doesn't even matter they'll connect to any free wi-fi hotspot i discovered oh, yeah that. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, but I did a couple of tests with something called a Wi-Fi pineapple, which is uh, it's a specially configured uh, wireless router that you can control very all kinds of uh, you know aspects of its functionality. So you can set it up to essentially intercept everyone's connections that connect to it. And uh, there are some complications because if people are using you know secure protocols like SSL or or now HSTS, right, the uh, mm-hmm. strict transport security, um, which Google and a lot of the bigger sites do use, it's very hard for the the middle access point to to actually break into that that session, which I learned. Oh. Um, the other thing that's interesting too is uh, I found that a lot more data than I expected was actually secured um, directly from the devices. Oh. So, you know, the IMAP uh, protocols used for email, mm-hmm. um, almost every protocol that uh, could be uh, communicated from the device um, was secured. So, 
I really wow. didn't get a lot of interesting data <laughs> from from that study, so we didn't actually go through with deploying, you know, a whole bunch of them across the country. Um, uh, in, mm-hmm. in a sense, it's a good news story. Um, but on the other hand, anytime somebody can get in the middle between you and you know the the place you want to communicate with is a risk, right? They're mm-hmm. going to find a way to break that session with you. Um, yeah. Right. The you know, there's you might see a warning dialogue pop up or something, but a lot of people will click through those things, and and, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. so there's there's still a lot of risk in using unknown Wi-Fi hotspots for sure. So, where are, are you currently doing these projects uh, for, like businesses that hire you to do them, or are you currently actively out in different cities with these going on right now and collecting data on them? No, actually, I, I mean, I do these things, as I said, sort of to, to get data sometimes and, and be able to talk about it. Symantec, mm-hmm. you know, funded the the uh, studies. We actually did uh, the smartphone studies in, well, the first one was U.S. and Canada. Then mm-hmm. I did one in Brazil and Mexico, okay. <laughs> uh, two two separate ones, three cities in Brazil, three three in Mexico. And then we did one with six cities in Canada uh, afterwards. And and those all kind of had good PR outcomes. Um, but I, I, because I do consulting, you know, in the training side, I'm not as much of a technical penetration tester. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not as, as big on, you know, the latest of this stuff. I do work with some associates who are, you know, excellent penetration testers. Tom is one yeah. of them. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I tend not to do too much in this area, you know, on a business, um, you know, basis. Uh, it's I use it mostly for the learning part of it. And mm-hmm. um the the I don't know if you want me to talk about it at all, but I'm I'm the the latest thing I'm working on is now gamified e-learning uh, for uh, businesses to try and yeah. help something innovative well, to get. Before you go on to that, I have an idea for you. Um, go to the Consumer Electronics Show in January oh, with yeah. your honey points. Would that be <laughs> so interesting? Because you know there they have all the newest and gr- latest and greatest, especially with Internet of Things. I think you could have a heyday there with this type of. Oh research. yeah, and you know what? As, as Tom said, you know, any place there's a large number of people, there's going to be hackers. So there are there will be people there doing that, not necessarily out of the best intentions. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, and then you know it would be great to to have somebody do it and then you know collect the data and, and report on it, but it's funny because you don't get a lot of support anymore from the IT security community for doing these kind of studies because everybody knows it's going to be you know outrageous numbers of people that <laughs> that fall for these things. So it's not of interest to the security profession anymore that that some of this stuff happens. Yeah, um, but from a business point of view, that's where it becomes interesting. You know, if a business can assess their own team uh, right. in some control controlled way to get a better idea of, um, you know, how vulnerable their team is. That's, that's really what's important to businesses. And that's what I want to focus on. Sure. Uh, well, uh, so, for the Department of Homeland Security, you know, <laughs> something mm-hmm, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah, uh, at, the, at the national level. Yeah, let's, I, I just looked at the clock. We're getting mm-hmm. close to the end, but quickly, like in the last minute, talk about your, your new project. I want to make oh, sure yeah. you have a mention to that before we go. Yeah, it's, uh, there's not a lot to say yet. It's in the very early stages. I need to put a few more points on the board, as they say, but uh, it's really going to be around helping businesses uh, in a more controlled way to 
both educate and assess uh, the security awareness of their staff in order to get an idea of the level of vulnerability. So, you know, recently, uh, the last five years or so, you know, phishing assessments have become a big thing within businesses mm-hmm. where they send out mock phishing e- emails uh, to people, in all staff really, and they look like real phishing messages. But if you click on the link, you end up going to a landing page that says, oops, you shouldn't have clicked on this. And here are some mm-hmm. hints as to why. So that's a really good teachable moment, right, to, to tell people if you did something that you shouldn't have, you you get them to remember <laughs> and, and give them some tips. And that's actually been a, a, like a very productive way of uh, educating people. But there are a lot of ways we can improve it to make it a more mm-hmm. controlled environment um, because – while it does give you an indication of the vulnerability, it really only measures the failures. And I'm finding a lot of businesses really want to treat security as a culture thing and they want it to be right. more positive experience. And so I'm trying to create a gamified environment where I can okay. put people in an environment that looks similar, but you know we right. don't want them to play work. We don't want right. to say there's no right. such thing as playing work. So it's going to be in a more fun environment, but it will be in office relatable uh, scenarios where people can actually be tested on this stuff in a fun way and you can t- measure their good and bad decisions. So that's well, something that, that I'm going to do uh, very shortly. I'll be announcing. That will be very good for our listeners to keep in mind. Um, we do have only a, about a minute here. So thank you, mm-hmm. Scott, for being on the show today. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate uh, you having me on. Yeah. So so uh, the time went so quickly. And I'm confident that my listeners now have a much better understanding of honey sticks and other physical and online lures that cyber crooks are using. Uh, today, we've been speaking with Scott Wright, a cybersecurity coach and consultant based in Ottawa, Canada. You can see more about Scott at securityviews.com. And uh, you can contact him using his email Scott at securityviews.com. And especially if uh, the last project he talked about, about gamified e-learning intrigues you, definitely get in touch with him about that. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. You can find the recordings of all my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, and Player FM. In addition, of course, to the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. Also, contact me for information, security, privacy, and compliance keynotes, expert witness, and other information about my Simbus360.com cloud services. And visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor, to see what I talk about on the CW Iowa Live morning shows. Also, uh, let me know. Do you have topic ideas or guest suggestions? Uh, Send me an email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.